everyone, and welcome back to Then Again, the podcast of the Northeast Georgia History Center. I am Marie Bartlett, the Director of Education here, and today I have with me Dr. Ben Steer, an Associate Professor of Anthropology and Sociology at Western Carolina University. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's my pleasure to be here. Today we are going to be talking about Cherokee architecture, and I do believe it's going to be quite a whirlwind of a tour through time and space here today. I'm so excited to learn more about this because, of course, the Northeast Georgia History Center, we are on the traditional lands of the Cherokee, and we actually have a Cherokee. Cherokee home on our property as well, the White Path Cabin, which we'll get to a little bit later. But I really would like to know, Dr. Steer, in layman's terms, can you give us a brief overview of what an average Cherokee home would have looked like? And I know that that depends on on the time and perhaps the specific location, um, but could you give us a really broad overview and maybe a few broad overviews depending on the time and space. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. And I promise I will get to Cherokee cabins, the 1820s, but before, <laughs> so, you know, I, I will, I will do my best to, to, to sort of lead us to a, an average description of what a average Cherokee household looked like in, in the 1820s, kind of contemporary with the, the white path cabin, but I'm going to go back in time to around AD 1400 and talk about how I like that idea of, you know, what does the average Cherokee house look like? Well, let's begin around AD 1400, so uh, roughly 600 years ago or so. We see across the southeastern United States among ancestral Cherokee people, but also ancestral Creek people, broadly speaking, like folks living, indigenous people living here in the southeastern U.S., particularly the Southern Appalachian Mountain region where, where we are, where both you and I are <laughs> today, we see the development of a, of a common type of house, uh, like a primary domestic structure that explorers, Spanish explorers in the 1500s describe, and, and then English explorers in, uh, in, in later centuries often describe, sometimes as a hothouse. And, and it's a, a house form that begins by first indigenous folks would dig out a, a semi-subterranean basin, sort of dig out like a, a shallow basin, maybe a couple feet deep into the ground. Within that basin, they would then build, sort of set the central hearth, the central fireplace in the house, four big corner support posts, and then using a style of architecture that's called earth-fast architecture, where you set the poles directly into the ground, build a house roughly, you know, 25 feet by 25 feet on a side. The shape is sort of square with rounded corners. And then once that, that sort of square with rounded corner, you know, floor plan with your four central supports is kind of set, then, then building up roof rafters into almost like a, a kind of like a conical roof shape. There's sometimes almost described as like sugar loaves, and then cover that cover that roof with with, with uh, thatch. And that that well built winter house. You know, for folks who are interested in the southeast, if you've been to places like the museum in Etowah, or or have visited the Okmulgee National Monument down in Georgia, or if you've been to the Akunalufti Living Village in Cherokee, North Carolina, that that reconstructed winter house is probably the kind of thing that you've seen. <laughs> and that might be your idea of like the kind of iconic uh, pre-contact um, uh, Cherokee house form. And indeed, you know, that that winter house persists, you know, up, up into the 1700s. Along with that, you know, winter house, folks after the 1500s, we can see in the, in the archaeological record, are, are sometimes building small uh, corn cribs, rectangular or uh, circular corn cribs, again, using earth-fast architecture, so, so putting posts right in the ground. And then on, on well-documented archaeological sites that date to, like, you know, after 1500, so kind of between 1500 and 1700, we also see in, in parts of the Cherokee homeland, folks building a rectangular summer house that accompanies the winter house. And that's a more open structure. It's rectangular. If your winter house is, say, 25 feet 
per side. And I'm converting like meters to feet in my head as I do this <laughs> because we do archaeology of the metric system. But, you know, the, those uh, rectangular houses might be like, you know, 20, 20, 25 feet long by maybe 10 or 15 feet wide and are often, um, they're rectangular, often open on one side to create a breezeway. Kind of think like almost like a gazebo um, or kind of open structure. And so those are not heavily insulated. The winter houses are, are uh, uh, sort of like chinked up with clay with what's wattle and daub. So they're really well insulated. Those rectangular houses are open. And so, you know, like when you look at explorers accounts and, and folks like Henry Timberlake, uh, you know, military personnel from the, the 18th century, 1700s, uh, moving through Cherokee country, they'll, you know, William Bartram coming through the Southeast, they'll, they'll describe these like, you know, winter summer house pairs. And so for a long, long time, you know, that's like a very, chip, uh, the archaeological record of a typical Cherokee household might be summer house, winter house, corn cribs, right? Another really important part of the, the Cherokee built environment of course are the, the the townhouses the big public structures uh which are which are you know really quite large as much as like you know 50 or, or 50 50 or 60 feet you know in, in diameter um, they also have that really important central hearth you know big support post but then enough seating for you know well over 100 people uh, really serving as like the, the big public the public building for a house um you don't really have a cherokee town unless you've got a townhouse you know, up through the, the the 1700s. And so looking at both the archaeological and the historical record, and I promised I was going to eat the cabins, and this is where we're going <laughs> to we're gonna finally actually get to cabins. There, there's an interesting period of time between about 1760 and 1820. And the, those roughly 60 years, 1760 to 1820, are when we archaeologically and historically sort of see the transition from this earth-fast form of architecture, winter houses, summer houses, toward these these log cabins and so you know what's kind of interesting is that if you think about that as like two ends of a spectrum up until 1760 most most you know cherokee families are, are still in this earth fast architecture winter house summer house by 1820 the the single room log cabin has kind of become like the traditional cherokee house form and it's interesting sort of looking at the archaeological record that that period of time is when it really happens not surprisingly that's associated with with you know, disease epidemics, including several really bad smallpox epidemics, you know, Seven Years' War, Anglo-Cherokee War, so these periods of, of warfare and disruption. So it's kind of in that context that Cherokee are adapting to the, the, this new, you know, socio-political reality, new bi biological realities, new economic realities, and, and are adapting their life ways to include these, these log cabins. So then, yeah, by 1820, I mean, it, it's interesting, like, really, yeah, the the one room log cabin is kind of like what an average Cherokee house looks like. And there's a, I, I pulled a quote that a lot of us, a lot of us use. This is from uh, the, the famous uh, missionary to the Cherokee, Samuel Worcester, who folks are familiar with Georgia history. This is like, you know, a, a name folks are probably familiar with, but this is from an account by Worcester in 1825, uh, where he's describing Cherokee houses. And like, I could have just given you this for the answer. What does an average <laughs> Cherokee house look like? But here's, here's Worcester quote, the houses of the Cherokee are of all sorts, from an elegant painted or brick mansion down to a very mean cabin. If we speak, however, of the mass of the people, they live in comfortable log houses, generally one story high, but frequently two, sometimes of hewn logs and sometimes unhewn, commonly with a wooden chimney and a floor of puncheons or what a New England man would call slabs. So, you know, that's Worcester, 1825, kind of giving us a snapshot. And the, the archaeological record sort of backs that up as, as well. You're kind of mostly looking at at folks having made that transition to, to fairly simple one-room horizontal log cabins um, by the by the 1820s. So that was a very long-winded answer to your question, but I, <laughs> I hope that was helpful. Of course. I mean, it, it really gives context to what does it look like 
pre-contact versus post-contact, do we know exactly why the Cherokee decided to use the more perhaps Western style, like a log cabin? Do we know why they decided to make that transition? Yeah, that's a, I mean, the, that, that why question is really great. And so I would, I would direct folks who are really interested in this, this question to a a recent book that's out with the University of Tennessee Press, um, Native American Log Cabins in the Southeast, uh, edited by Gregory A. Wasselkopf. And uh, that book was a product of a symposium at the Southeastern Archaeological Conference in 2016, where uh, a bunch of us archaeologists who are kind of interested in these questions about log cabins, that, that question in particular, like why and how did, did indigenous people in the Southeast make this transition, you know, sort of tackle that question with you know, in particular evidence from the archaeological record, right? Like, what does the archaeology of cabins look like between these years of, of 1760, 1820, and, and what can that tell us? And, I mean, I think the, I, we, can, we can do away with one kind of simple, overly simple explanation. It's not just like some kind of top-down assimilation process, right? I mean, I mean it's, it's, it's much more complex than that. So, you know, in those, in those decades of 1760 to 1820, Indigenous people in the Southeast are, are adapting to, to these all kinds of new forces, you know, economic forces, biological forces, a new kind of environment. And they're really strategically adapting certain kinds of technologies, uh, including housing in this case, while also, you know, maintaining uh, other, other kinds of, of, of technologies. Um, you know, to give some examples at a lot of these archaeological sites, we see people continuing to use traditional clay ceramics, you know, traditional clay pots at relatively high rates, even as they're like building cabins. What does that tell you? Well, that means they're still cooking food in traditional ways with the same kind of pots they've been using forever, right? You know, but, but, then, but then adapting to this, this kind of architecture. We also see it's kind of interesting, again, you know, for centuries in, in, I mean, millennia in the Southeast, you have this like, again, earth-fast architecture, right? Like, you know, post and ground architecture. This is a very different way of, of building houses, you know, putting out you know, cutting horizontal logs with, with, you know, metal axes and then laying them out in this cabin format. We do actually see some kind of cool transitional forms in the archaeological record where it looks like folks are still using some upright posts in the ground and then laying down logs between those. If you can kind of picture that, podcasters, right? <laughs> so you can imagine almost like a, you know, parallel lines of posts in the ground, but then you're setting your logs, your split rails in between those posts to kind of build up your cabin frame, right? Which is, which is really cool to think about, like, what are some of these transitional forms that sort of look like? So, you know, part of it is, you know, and anthropologists love thinking about houses, right? To kind of step back big picture. They can tell us so much about people and, and, and what they value. But there's there's some particular case studies you can you can look at. In some cases, you can look at, you know, who are some of the folks that are adopting, you know, cabins early in, in, in these communities? In some cases, they are like strivers or like movers and shakers. You know, there's some great examples in, in this book, uh, in this edited volume from like a, a Catawba context and also Seminole context where you can see these are kind of like, you know, leaders in the communities who want to have a cabin as almost like a kind of power play to like show that like, you know, they're hip and, and they're adopting the, the same kind of architecture that, you know, other, other folks are doing. I think, it, you know, kind of thinking more at a societal scale of like whole groups of people adopting these cabins. The there's a, a wonderful um, uh, historian. Uh, she's at, um, at UPenn now, Julie Reed. She's a citizen of the Cherokee Nation and a historian who, who does a lot with 19th century Cherokee history. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing, you know, one of the points she makes in a lot of her work, which is that you can often look in the 19th century and see uh, she has this great sort of one-liner that, you know, Cherokee are changing so they can stay the same. 
they're changing certain parts of their life ways, certain parts of how they, you know, uh, move through the world economically and socially so that they can also maintain things that really matter to them, like their language and their culture, right? So if you build a log cabin from the outside, you look like a settler, right? I mean, you sort of look like the other people who are who are moving into your to your communities. You're outwardly showing that you're adapting, kind of broadly speaking. You know, we talk about that idea of the quote unquote kind of scare quote civilization policy, right? That like the American government is kind of rolling out even as early as as, as the 1800s. And so outwardly, you know, you build a log cabin. You sort of look like you're you know you put on Western clothing. You're you, you know you're kind of adapting to to this this broader cultural, social, economic landscape. But then inside the cabin what are you doing? Well, you're still speaking Cherokee and you're still cooking with, in many cases, I mean, obviously you're, you're adopting some of these new kind of metal pots and, and pans and kettles and things, but in a lot of cases, man, you're still, you're still cooking with, <laughs> with ceramic pots. And so your language is being maintained in the home. Cuisine is being maintained in the home. So that's a little bit oversimplified, but in some ways, you know, that's an outward change that you can make by, by building a cabin that, that also allows you to stay the same in some ways, maintain part to your culture. It's also true that, you know, Cherokee in the 1800s, I mean, just like anybody else would do, uh, they're, they're adapting to new kinds of technology and using new kinds of technology. So you can think about what do you need to build a log cabin, metal axes so you can split, so you can split logs, access to draft animals in some cases. So, I mean, think about how heavy a 20 foot log is, right? If you're going to move that, right? I mean, that's not just necessarily you know, people power, that's often draft animals. Whereas in the past, with that earth-bath style architecture, that's groups of people building houses together, you know, with 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 hand tools. Um, so that it also represents that they're, you know, they're they're adapting to these new technologies and using them even as parts of their culture are, are kind of kind of staying the same. I love that quote, you know, they're adapting to stay the same. You know, it's not that they necessarily want to embrace every single aspect of, you know, this Western European culture that's coming down, but, you know, they understand that perhaps some things have to change a little bit, at least outwardly, so that they can stay the same, they can stay who they are. Yeah, so copyright Julie Reed on that one. And yes, inter absolutely. interested people, please check out, please check out Julie's work. She's really fabulous and has a lot of- I, uh, I'm intrigued, I'll have to go- look. Excellent work on Cherokee history, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to go look that up after. That sounds, it sounds incredible, especially since she is a member of the, the Cherokee Nation as well. It'd be an incredible perspective. Now, you also mentioned a, a townhouse. Um, and of course, a, a, you know, you can't have a town without a townhouse, right? That kind of, I would assume, denotes a town um, is that there there is a house there. So can you tell us a little bit more about what an average town would have looked like around the townhouse? You know, is that the center of the village? Um, and how does that kind of transition as well into this era of, you know, kind of log cabins? Is is there an equivalent to that or does it kind of just go out of out of, of history? Yeah, that's that's great. And so um uh, your 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 listeners are experiencing what my poor students have to listen to a lot, which is I'm, I'm going to start by backing up a few centuries before I actually get to the question that you're asking me. So um, I hope folks like I hope yeah I hope folks are enjoying this and it's not it's not terrible. Let's go back then in, into the 1700s again and to to sort of to give us a starting point. So we'll kind of a little bit arbitrarily, but like imagine we're say in like 1720 or 1730, right? And um, which is a time actually when we have some some early census records of and maps of, of, of Cherokee towns. Cherokee in the Southeast at that time are, are living in five large groups of towns. There's the lower towns in Northern uh, uh, South Carolina and, and Georgia, um, the middle towns, which run along the, 
Little Tennessee River from roughly like Dillard, Georgia, up into um, uh, Franklin and, and up into Cowie, North Carolina. There are the outtowns, which are kind of the most remote and like modern day Cherokee, North Carolina. The Koala boundary is actually in those outtowns. Cullowhee, North Carolina, where I teach at Western Carolina University, are we actually have learned that the our campus is built on, we knew it was built on a, a Cherokee town, but the name of that town was Tali Shishkwayahi, which means two sparrows town. Uh, in Cherokee language, and that would have been um, uh, one of the, the the Cherokee outtowns. You then have the the valley towns, which are located along the uh, the Valley River um, between Murphy's and Andrew. That was incredibly densely occupied in the 1700s by by, by Cherokee communities. And then the Overhill towns in in East Tennessee along the Tennessee River. A lot of our archaeological understanding of 18th century Cherokee culture comes from huge excavations that TVA did of those Overhill Cherokee towns at places like Toqua and and Choda and, and 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 such and so so you have these groups of towns and w- within you know each of these groups of towns at any given time you know you 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 have you know dozens of towns each of which has a, a townhouse that marks the center of that community and the, the townhouse architecturally is very similar to the winter house in fact you can in many ways kind of think about townhouses almost as like scaled up uh, winter houses so you have a central hearth you know big support post seating for you know, uh, dozens, even hundreds of, of people. They're the places where big community uh, decisions are made, uh, where, where ceremony takes place. Those townhouses have very often pretty clear cosmological orientations. The four corner posts are oriented in, in, in some ways to the four cardinal directions. My colleagues at, at Western Carolina, Dr. Brett Riggs and, and Dr. Jane Eastman, have recently been doing archaeological field work at a, at a Middletown, Cherokee town, the site of Watauga down in Macon County, North Carolina. And, and they've got good evidence based on remote sensing, magnetic radiometry they've been doing to create a sort of subsurface map of the site. That site has really interesting cosmological orientations to you know, things like summer solstice, winter solstice, that, that folks are really intentionally like positioning the townhouse to like catch the sunrise, for example, at particular important times of the year and, and to chart the movements of stars as well, which is, which is really interesting. So these, these buildings, these townhouses are, are cosmologically, richly just, just very densely symbolic, but also they're the pra- practically speaking, they're the places where, where people meet, where decisions are made. There's a long history of making decisions by, by council in, in Cherokee communities. It's where the, the councils meet. And so you can sort of imagine you've got these five groups of, ta- of, of towns within those groups of towns. You know, you've got your individual town with your townhouse and then dozens of these winter summer house households kind of surrounding that townhouse around a, a large central plaza area. Um, there's also room for playing, you know, playing stickball, uh, you know, playing the ball game within those communities. And then you do also have at the same time in the 1700s, you know, some dispersed households away from towns. So here, like in the mountains of North Carolina, where where I live, take our campus, for example. So so thinking about Tali Shishkwaya here, Two Sparrows Town, you had a central town with a townhouse. But then at the same time, along some creeks and drainages off the Tuckasegee River, there's archaeological evidence for small 18th century Cherokee households who are a little bit farther out from kind of the center of town, but would, would you know, obviously come into to town for, you know, meetings and, and big ceremonial events and, and, and just to see people and, and hang out, and, you know, stuff that we do. Interestingly, this, this is just great stuff from, from the ethnographic record. Every year at the at the green corn ceremony, there was a traditional practice whereby you know, people in towns would would put out their own house fires and relight their house fires with fire taken from the central hearth of the townhouse in their communities, thereby linking 
each individual household with that that central fire from those places. There, there's also, um, you know, for folks who are maybe familiar with some some of the more famous Cherokee ethnography, if you read, you know, James Mooney's Myths of Cherokee, there's a really important passage in which Swimmer, who was sort of the elder that that provides a lot of the information that, that Mooney writes about. Swimmer talks about the idea that at some of the larger Cherokee townhouses, at the at the more famous Cherokee mother towns, specifically the the site of, of Gadua, the central place that, that, that a lot of Eastern Cherokee think of themselves as being from, and the site of Nkwasi, Swimmer talks about there being these everlasting fires at these places. I mean, he's saying that those those mounds that contain those townhouses really are still alive. And the central fire is still burning at those places. So we can also think about townhouses, right? Sort of symbolically, metaphorically being these places where you have like these everlasting fires that are that are still going. And so, you know, that's a that's a, a kind of town plan that really is symbolically loaded, but it's also just like a very practical way to build a community, right? I mean, it's sort of it's sort of interesting, like, you know, if you listen to questions about like American architecture and real estate now. I mean, there's, there's all we have all these problems with housing. Like a lot of like cutting edge designers are trying to build these intentional communities where like everything's within walking distance, right? And, and like not to be like simple minded about it, but boy, there's a walkable community. You know, you sort of have your townhouse, which is your place for for public, you know, kind of you know services that you need, as as well as community gathering, and you know, folks are living in a tight knit community, so. I'll put that out there for what it's worth for, for people who are interested in looking to the past for, for you know, solutions to, to current problems. So that style of, of building communities really persist up, up through, you know, like 1760s um, when you start seeing these, you know, raids against Cherokee, like the Montgomery and Grant expeditions, you know, by the by the British and early American militias. And of course, the famous, you know, Rutherford, you know, Rutherford's military action against Cherokees a little over a decade later. As Cherokee communities, particularly like in Western North Carolina, they're kind of pushed, you know, south and west toward the extreme southwest corner of the state, and then, and then also kind of moving down into into Georgia a little bit as well. We see that that older, you know, pattern of nucleated towns with a townhouse gives way to a more kind of dispersed settlement pattern. So, so folks are living a little bit farther out, spaced out a little more, and in some cases, at the same time that folks are beginning to adapt to building log cabins for their domestic structures, you know, you get building sort of like Western style council houses. So folks in in um, Northern Georgia may have had a chance to go to New Echota, for example, and see the restored, you know, ta- council house at New Echota. And there, there's sort of a Western style early 1800s building where, where that's serving as like a meeting house and, and council house. And so that institution of the council house in the you know, remains is, is still remains as an important social institution, but but it moves into a horizontal log <laughs> structure. You know, in, in the same way that people are, are adapting this as well. So um, that's a very long-winded answer. That you see a general move away from like these nucleated towns to like a more dispersed settlement pattern, and and along with that, and obviously there's variation. You know, across. North Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee, South Carolina, the variation in terms of how it's happening. But you do see folks adopting this new form of architecture to, to build the townhouse. But that institution and, and the functions the townhouse are serving are, are still very much, you know, still very much the same. So we talked a little bit about the changes that have occurred, especially from these traditional, more post in ground to the more log cabins style that's a little bit more uh, Western European. But could you tell us 
you know, what are the, some of the main changes to Cherokee architecture over the centuries that are perhaps people wouldn't recognize as much as like, oh, well, this is, you know, a, a circular earthen dwelling versus a, a log structure. Are there any more subtle changes that we also can see? Yeah, that, that's really interesting. So um, st- starting starting with sort of, sort of the more obvious stuff first, indeed, I mean, this transition from earth fast architecture, you know, posting ground construction to, to doing horizontal log cabins really is, is a big one. There are, also, there are also some kind of more subtle things that present some interesting challenges for archaeologists, but, but then are also sort of worth thinking more about, you know, anthropologically and kind of broadly. That post and ground architecture leaves a really, really nice archaeological signature. If you're an archaeologist and you're doing, you know, say like magnetic gradiometry over a site or uh, in the older days, if you're doing big horizontal excavations, post in ground or earth vast architecture, it leaves you like a blueprint. I mean, it's you, 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 you end up having a site map that looks like it looks like a top down blueprint that you're used to reading. You know, you can see where all the posts are. To, to, OK, this house. You know, this house measures 25 feet by 25 feet. Here's all the wall posts and, and here's the central hearth, right? Uh, log cabins can sometimes have a lighter archaeological footprint than that, because if you're setting down logs on top of foundation footings, or even in some cases just setting logs down, like right on the ground to, to, to build your, your structure, well, that's not going to leave a hole in the ground. And so in some cases, like the only archaeological remains of a, of a, uh, a log cabin might be like an artifact scatter. You know, or perhaps the remains of an attached chimney, which which is going to leave maybe you know evidence of burning and 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 uh, you know maybe maybe stone foundations for a chimney. One cool thing that begins to happen in the early 1800s with these some of these cabins, though, which is kind of cool, people start digging cellars, and so in some cases, the real archaeological signature of a cabin is a big old square deep cellar. And you know, what are folks using these cab these cellars for? Well, among other things, like sweet potatoes. Like storing root crops, which which is kind of cool because there you're seeing like you know changes in diet that are being reflected in these cellars as well. But then that cellar also provides an interesting place to sort of like potentially store and and hide important objects, like maybe ritual objects. That again, like you don't want them to be quite as visible to to outside communities. And in, in some cases, um, you know, we do have evidence that you're you're finding objects, you know, in Cherokee cabins that might be kind of ritually charged that are that are down in these in these cellars. And in that in that book that I've recommended once, and I'll recommend it again, Native American Law Cabins in the Southeast. <laughs> again, my 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 colleague, uh, Dr. Brett Riggs at Western Carolina has a wonderful chapter in there that he co-wrote with uh, Tom Belt. Tom Belt is a um, is Cherokee. He's a Cherokee language expert. He actually taught Cherokee language at Western Carolina for many years. And and he and he and Brett have a co-authored chapter in that book where they talk about some of the linguistic associations with how people talk about cellars. The idea of the ground digging into the ground actually providing like a safe and positive place to store powerful objects like richly charged objects. And so there's a lot of really interesting ritual that might be taking place kind of kind of below the surface that, that would be totally like just flying over the heads of European observers who who don't <laughs> you know who don't really know about this stuff. Like there's actually there could be a lot of interesting ritual stuff happening in cellars, you know, as a place to store important objects that again are, are just gonna totally kind of beyond the comprehension of, of Euro-American settlers, which I, which I think is kind of an interesting interesting thing to think about. I would point out too, I don't think I've mentioned this yet, but in addition to the, you know, adoption and, and, and adaptation of building log cabins, you do see in North Carolina at any rate, some folks who are still building a, a structure 
referred to as like the hot house. And it's almost like a smaller version of the winter house that's being used, you know, as as a place to keep warm. It's it's still like a, a you know, a structure that can get really hot. I mean, uh, can get really warm where folks are doing things like, you know, parching potatoes and corn because you can get it really hot and, and, and even kind of dry in there. And then also using it for essentially like sweat baths, you know, for like ritual. And so you have you have like this older style of architecture, the architectural style of the winter house being kind of adopted to build a structure that now is kind of like secondary to being your primary domestic structure, but still has like these really important ritual functions. And, and at least at some at some sites in like Western North Carolina, which was one of the, you know, kind of more traditional bastions of, of, of Cherokee culture in the, in the 19th century, you see that architectural form persisting, which is which is really neat. So yeah. So again, like, it's kind of interesting when I when I went into some of this research, I was expecting to see this break from post and ground architecture to log cabins being in some ways like more of a bigger deal than it was. And, and I think like not surprisingly, because indigenous people are really resilient, like Cherokee are adapting, they're adapting to these, these you know, new ways of, of, of building structures, but uh, they're maintaining, adapting lots and lots of elements of what we would think of as like traditional culture, um, very often under the radar of, of, of people, you know, who, who just don't really don't see that happening. <laughs> <laughs> what you said just leads perfectly into our next question, which is, what do you think are some of the most common misconceptions about Cherokee architecture in general? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's, that's a great question. And I want to I want to be careful not to like impose too many of my own, you know, sort of like biases on, on, on this. But I mean, just generally speaking, I think a lot of a lot of Americans tend to through no fault of their own, really, like not have a great general understanding about indigenous cultures and like Native American cultures at all. A lot of my my students at Western are, are so eager to like take our courses in Cherokee studies and, and and history and anthropology and just have a chance to learn like really good detailed historical information uh, you know about Native American and, and and specifically Cherokee community because they they never got anything beyond like the one chapter about the Trail of Tears in their high school textbook and I see you shaking your head because like maybe that was your experience also <laughs> you know I mean so I think a lot of folks do you know, just because of, of the nature of the way we tend to teach about Native American culture, if at all, in our high schools, is tend to think about, you know, indigenous cultures as being kind of monolithic and maybe not not changing over time. And so one of the, the I think the most rewarding things that doing detailed studies of, of Cherokee architecture, you know, where you're really trying to understand, like at the decade to decade level, how are things changing? There's all this dynamism, you know, there's people that are adapting to new forms of architecture. You've got, you know, maybe like movers and shakers and strivers who want to get into a cabin as fast as they can to, to kind of like display, you know, their their affiliation with with like a new source of power, other folks who, who want to maintain, you know, older ways of, of building. And, you know, at these broad societal scales, even as you see a shift away from a way of building houses and towns that had been prevalent for centuries, Obviously, folks are maintaining really important parts of their culture and their identity, even as they're they're changing the kind of houses that they live in. And like, I don't think we would expect that to be terribly shocking when we're talking about like American culture. But because we tend to have this monolithic view of indigenous cultures, I think we tend to simplify that, you know, sort of simplify that process. So, yeah, it's just a, it's a really interesting thing to, to, to think about, um, both for its kind of broader, you know, anthropological implications as in addition to um, helping us understand unique Cherokee uh, culture identity and cultural identity and, and history as well. 
I think that's a, a, a very good summary, perhaps, of some people's. They haven't had the chance to learn about a lot of different Native American cultures. And when we say Native American, you know, people don't think about how just how many different cultures and, and tribes and nations that there really truly are in America and that they all get kind of grouped together. And it seems like there's also not as much study on the East Coast as there is perhaps on the West Coast, which were able to be on their own longer, perhaps before contact, just due to America starting on the East Coast and then progressing towards the Pacific. Do you have anything to add upon that? I, I see you you thinking, contemplating. <laughs> no, that no, that's great. Yeah, no, you're you're raising so many really really uh, great issues. Yeah, I mean, there, there's over there's over 570 federally recognized tribes today. You know that, and that's not counting you know state recognized tribes. And and indeed, I mean, again, one of the things that I, I've had the great privilege to to work really closely with you know the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians now for um coming up on almost 20 years, depending on on how you count it. And it's it's indeed there are so few tribes in in the eastern woodlands that were able to maintain their their ancestral homelands and and in particular the remarkable you know kind of ways that that the eastern band um, were able to you know negotiate with the state of North Carolina and the federal government you know resist removal in in some cases and in other cases sort of you know lawyer up and and fight in the courts and also use things like court like corporate law to incorporate as a charter in the 1800s you know to to maintain their foothold here in the east it's really remarkable and so i would also encourage people just more broadly you know if you think about a place like you know white pass cabin which i think is a wonderful it's a wonderful thing for people to come see and and, and engage like very physically with, with with cherokee history you know learn more about the remarkable resistance and struggle and success that, that, that Cherokee have had to stay here in the East. It really is a, a remarkable story and one that I would encourage folks to, to try and learn more about on your, on your own, for sure. Yeah. And of course, that is, that is one of the stories that we tell here at the Northeast Georgia History Center. We have, of course, our exhibit, Land of Promise, which starts with the indigenous population going back thousands upon thousands of years ago. Of course, we highlight the Cherokee Nation as well and in the exhibits. And then, of course, we have our historic structures outside of the museum. The cabin, the cabin does not fit indoors, um, <laughs> even though we do consider it to be our largest historical artifact. So we have the White Path Cabin outside and we encourage people to come and visit it. We believe that this cabin was originally built by the traditionalist Cherokee leader White Path, and we believe that it was built in the very late 1700s, sometime between 1780-1790. But then White Path, even though he attempted to resist a lot of different European influences into the Cherokee Nation, most specifically he led a revolt, really trying to um, keep Cherokee religion centralized and very much rejection of Christianity and the Christian teachings that were coming in to the Cherokee nation. But he was forcibly removed from his his house, his homelands here on the Trail of Tears and ended up dying while in Kentucky. So after he was forcibly removed, the land was taken into the by the federal government, divided up, put into land lotteries, and it was awarded to a man named John Fisher, and then he sold it to the Pinson family. Now, after the Pinson family came in about the 1840s, they remodeled the cabin in a sense, and they added on a different room to his, because he had a, we believe that White Path 
had a one-room cabin, which may or may not have had a loft. We believe that it did. And then the Pinson family, they added a second room and a connecting open air connecting hallway, um, making it a dog trot style cabin, extended the loft to the second room as well and over the hallway. But I was wondering, I, I've, you know, we, we've sent you pictures and we also have a video on YouTube uh, giving a tour of the cabin that is from the pandemic days. But I was wondering in your expert opinion, can you still see traces of Cherokee architecture on that left side of the building that are, are fingerprints of White Pass? So I, I hesitate to use the word expert for anything that I say, but I'll, I'll, I'll do, do my best shot at it. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and having a chance to look at some of the um, excellent photos and, and video that you're, you were able to provide. I think my, my takeaway is that it really does fit this kind of broad pattern of, you know, most Cherokee building these kind of simple one room, one room cabins in the late in the late 1700s so that i think that that kind of fits well um i mean it's it, obviously there's been restoration kind of on the inside so it's sort of hard to see you know how well that uh if any of that original like kind of chinking or daub has been preserved that's kind of cool you know that that waddle and, and daub uh, technique of course kind of kind of precedes cabins and goes back to earth vast architecture and so that's one thing that some archaeologists again in particular in this in this volume that i've sort of been plugging the whole our whole conversation, you know, that that's an interesting thing to look at in, in terms of maybe looking at, at traditions of house building that, that, that kind of persist throughout that that transition into building, you know, split rail horizontal cabins. But I mean, one thing that, that does occur to me that's really neat to think about is that here's here's White Pat, here's somebody who has a historical figure, is renowned for trying to, you know, maintain important elements of traditional Cherokee culture to to resist removal you know, to, to sort of maintain Cherokee identity. And, you know, and he's living in a cabin. So, you know, here's somebody who had adapted this, this form of architecture. Um, at the same time, you know, it's, if you actually look at who's living in, you know, what kind of cabins by the late 1700s, early 1800s, you know, most of your, of your Cherokee population in, you know, Georgia, North Carolina, Tennessee, Alabama, they are living in these kind of simple one-room cabins. And it's relatively few people like your, you know, Major Ridges, your John Rosses, again, I'm, I'm assuming some some interest and some and a little bit of, you know, historical uh, 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 background for, for listeners here, but like your really famous figures in like, you know, removal era politics, you know, a lot of those guys are, I mean, are living in really fine houses, you know, and, 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 you know, sort of like your, your economically elite Cherokee by the early 1800s have, have certainly, you know, are living in two room or larger cabins or, or even, you know, again, to, to go back to that Worcester quote, like these really fine, fine painted houses. Right. So, but the vast majority of Cherokee, like, you, you know, putting, putting a rough figure on maybe like, you know, 80, 80 or more percent of Cherokee are living in these, you know, kind of, kind of simple you know, one room cabins. Again, thinking about this, like almost like kind of a tension between adapting new ways of, of, of living, but then also maintaining a really important Cherokee cultural identity that really harkens back to pre-contact architecture, which is to say that when you look at Cherokee houses from the 1700s, 1600s, 1500s, pretty much everybody's building their houses the same size. Nobody has McMansions. Nobody is competing for status by like building bigger houses. That's a very Euro-American thing to do, to, to, to kind of like build a larger house as a way to, to show status changes, to, to compete with status. And if, if I can be allowed to get really wonky with your listeners for just a minute, over this last year, I've been working with some colleagues at the University of Georgia 
uh, Dr. Jen Birch and, and, and her, her partner, Stefan Brannon. Uh, Dr. Brannon actually works for New South Associates and archaeology company in Georgia. We've been working with some other archaeologists who are interested in using Gini coefficients to look at social inequality in the past. And Gini coefficients are, are they're actually, it's actually an index that economists use to compare income at societal levels. And so take a country's income, you know, basically throw it into a histogram, you do some math. <laughs> and if you have a country that has like a lot of inequality and a lot of corruption, they're going to have a really high Gini coefficient. Like they're going to ping in at like a 0. 0.6 or a 0. 0.7. So if you look like, if you look at, you know, a place with lots of corruption, lots of problems and, and lots of inequality, runaway inequality, they're like going to ping in like a 0. 0.6, 0. 0.7. If you look at a place like Sweden, where <laughs> you have lots of income equality, like like pretty flat, right? That's going to ping in at like a 0. 0.2, right? Or, or, or something. And, and, you know, the U.S. is kind of in the, in the middle of that. And so there's some archaeologists now who for, for a few years, um, it's kind of led by, by Tim Kohler at Washington State, have been using house size from archaeological sites in the way that economists would use income, right, as a proxy, and then taking Gini coefficients of archaeological sites in the past to try and get a sense of like how equal or unequal was this society. Now, there's all kinds of problems with this. Like, like it's not a perfect instrument, but what's kind of interesting about this is if you look at archaeological sites in the Eastern woodlands, broadly speaking, so ancestral Cherokee sites, Creek sites, even up in around the Great Lakes and up into Canada, ancestral uh, Iroquoian sites, Haudenosaunee sites, they have really low Gini coefficients, like really low in the like 0.15 range or the 0.2 range. So if you're using houses to like look at social equality, you know, the takeaway from that is there's not a deep tradition in the Eastern woodlands of indigenous people where like one person in that community builds a much bigger house than everybody else. It's just like not a thing that you do. That's not how you display your wealth. There's a long history of a kind of egalitarian ethos, decision-making by council, downplaying uh, a wealth inequality, playing up a sense of, of, of community uh, in the way that you build your houses. And that really core value of valuing a kind of sense of equality and, and downplaying really fancy displays of wealth, that maintains itself even in the face of, of, of a lot of this, uh, just these incredible changes. So I, I think it's really cool that, you know, you can, you can look at these, look at a person like White Path and well, yeah, he's adapted to, to living in a European style cabin. Yeah, he's not building a McMansion, but, but, then you, but then, you know, I'll leave it to listeners to kind of think about, well, who, are, who is building like the, the mansions and who is like starting to take on like, you know, these, these European ways of, of building houses to signal wealth. How is that connecting with a lot of other big changes and, and connecting with the story of removal itself? It's really, that's an interest. that's a whole other podcast, I suppose, but an interesting thing to think about. Absolutely. Now, how did you get into studying Cherokee architecture? Um, because it seems like it's perhaps a, a little bit more of a you know, you, you don't just sign up for a major in Cherokee architecture. <laughs> That's um, great. So how did you decide um, that this is, was going to be your area of study and why do you find it so fascinating? Yeah, that's 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 a great question. I um, I, I was incredibly fortunate as a as a, a young archaeologist to have the privilege to work on archaeological sites on projects for the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. So I graduated from college in, in 2003 um, from Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And then I worked for a cultural resource management company uh, called TRC. They're still around and, 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 and you know, great archaeological firm. They still do a lot of work for the Eastern Band up here in Western North Carolina. I regularly correspond with, with friends and colleagues who still work there. But gosh, so I guess like when I was like 23 or 24, I, I was put on this project in which 
TRC was excavating and recording the entire footprint of what was going to become the new Cherokee K-12 school complex just outside of Cherokee, North Carolina. It was a 40-acre excavation. It was, I think, potentially, depending on how you count it, like the largest excavation in like the history of North Carolina. Huge, huge project. And this was, this was uh, in 2004, 2005 that I was working on this, this site outside of Cherokee. It was called the Ravensford Project on the Ravensford Tract. You know, I was one of a, a huge crew of like, you know, 50 or 60 archaeologists who were working five days a week trying to record, you know, the entire footprint of, of, of this, this archaeological site before this school was constructed. And it was just a remarkable project. We had, you know, members of the Eastern Band that were frequently on site with us as monitors and also just visiting. Like, you know, the, I remember one day the AP Cherokee history class from Cherokee High came out to what was going to be their new high school, you know. To, to look at the site. And the thing that people were most interested on about on the site were the were the houses. I mean, obviously we were finding all kinds of really fascinating things out there, you know, pottery and, and projectile points. And but the fact that we were excavating such a large area meant that that we were exposing entire houses. And there was just something really, really special about being able to show folks, well, here's the footprint of a house. You know, this is 25 feet by 25 feet, and you can actually like kind of imagine yourself like sitting down on this thing, like around a fireplace. And, and in particular, you know, just having that incredible privilege to work so close with, with the Cherokee community, you know, and, and having Cherokee visitors out there. You think about the, the Cherokee clan system, right? And like everybody belongs to one of, of, of seven clans on their, their mother's side and, and also on their father's side. And so you think about folks that are visiting out there. And, and at the time, the having conversations about this with, among other folks, the uh, the tribal historic preservation officer for the, the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, Russell Townsend, who's a, a good friend and, and mentor. And, you know, Russ was talking about the relationship between, you know, Cherokee visiting that site and, and the, the houses we were, you know, uncovering. And he said, look, there's a, you know, there's a one in seven chance that you're related to the folks who built this house through the clan system, you know? And you think about just how, how impactful that is and how meaningful that is. That like, you know, these Cherokee students, for example, who are visiting out there, like it wasn't just a boring high school history trip, right? I mean, they were not only, you know, like seeing this archaeological excavation happening, but I mean, what it's hard, like, like as an American who's moved around a lot, it's hard to even imagine like that kind of close connection, right? Like there's a one in seven chance that I'm directly related to the clan system to like the person who lived in this house, you know, 300 years ago. That's really, really powerful stuff really, really powerful stuff. And so that, you know, that hands-on experience of trying to excavate, understand these houses, and and then also having that in real time opportunity to like do interpretation and try and understand these places while, while working side by side with folks in the Cherokee community was really just, it was awesome. It was really, 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 really neat. And I think also that that project was ahead of its time in a lot of ways in, in terms of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians worked from the ground up on the research design for that project. So for example, like we, we did not excavate any graves on that project. We had a specific mandate, like just to, you can see what graves look like when, when you encounter them without disturbing any human remains. They have a very specific kind of footprint they leave behind. And so, you know, those were those were recorded just at surface level, but then not disturbed and protected. And, and that's a practice that's becoming really common on for any kind of archaeologist who work up here in West North Carolina these days. So uh, it was really just a privilege to, to work on that site. And um, and yeah, the, the coolest thing out there were the houses. That was really the, that was, that was the thing that was helping us, you know, understand changes in, in Cherokee culture. And so when I went to, after a few years of working in the field, I decided I, I did want to, you know, go back to grad, go, go to graduate school and, and, and get a PhD. So I went 
to the University of Georgia and focused not just on Cherokee houses, but more broadly on trying to understand the Native American houses changed over time across the Southeast. And then I think, too, just, you know, houses are really cool. Like anthropologists have been interested in houses for a long time, and you can learn an awful lot about a community at multiple scales, you know, from the scale of like the individual house and how people arrange things in a room to the kind of like Zillow bird's eye view of, of looking down <laughs> at, at houses, you know, like like a sociologist from 30,000 feet and trying to understand what kind of changes can you understand about a culture or society through, through their through their houses. So, um, yeah, it's just it's a great thing to think about. I had the specific experience of like falling in love with, with the architecture, uh, with, with the archaeology of architecture. But then, boy, as an anthropologist, it's really exciting and, and really interesting. You can do wonky things like try and do Gini coefficients on house size to look at social inequality in the past, or you can try and drill down and really understand you know, what can White Path's cabin tell us about this one person's life, you know, 200 years ago. So yeah, I hope, I hope I've, I've made some converts out there. It's a, it's a really cool thing to think about. <laughs> Absolutely. I love social history. I love fashion history. I love historic houses because I feel like through fashion, you know, that's something that you're putting on your body. It's incredibly personal and that's expressing who you are in a very personal way. And houses, it's what you surround yourself with every single day of your life and what you're using every single day of your life. And it can really, on a personal level, that I feel like people can relate to a little bit better, tells us about a bigger picture. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so, so much for being on our podcast today and getting us a an introduction to Cherokee architecture, because I know that I, I think this is, you know, we, we've been chatting for about an hour and that is just an introduction to this incredibly interesting study. But perhaps we, we can do another podcast uh, digging in a little bit more in the future if our listeners are interested. But again, thank you so much for being here. Do you have any final thoughts for us? Yeah, I'll just I'll just make one last plug for folks who are interested in that book. It's Native American Log Cabins in the Southeast, edited by Gregory A. Wasselkoff, uh, University of Tennessee Press. You can find it wherever books are sold. So would encourage folks to, to take a look at that. And then another, another resource that I'll recommend for folks who are interested in learning more about Cherokee culture more broadly, there is a wonderful resource from Cherokee Nation that's called OCO TV. And you can just, if you just Google OCO TV, it's spelled O-S-I-Y-O dot TV. So like OCO tv.com it's it's sort of like pbs uh, by the cherokee nation and so they're they're roughly 30 minute episodes about cherokee history and culture and and you know contemporary cherokee issues for educators these are like especially great because they the um producers break them down into like five or six minute video segments and so if you're a high school teacher or a college professor out there or just somebody interested and and you're looking for higher quality stuff than what you might find just kind of you know in the dark corners of the internet. OCO TV is wonderful. And, and their Cherokee Almanac series in particular has interviews with anthropologists, archaeologists, historians. So if, if you're interested in, in this kind of stuff, OCO TV has these really wonderful, you know, excellent quality five, six minute video segments that can be uh, a great way to educate yourself and, and perhaps your students. I'm assuming some of the folks out there uh, might be fellow nerds who are listening to this or, or, or nerd slash teachers out there. And so um, that's a wonderful resource that, that I can't recommend highly enough for folks who want to educate themselves and others about uh, Cherokee history and culture. Yes, and we can make sure that those are also linked in the bio so that it is very easy for all of our listeners to be able to go and see all of those wonderful resources. But thank you again for being a wonderful resource today and for introducing us to Cherokee architecture. It's, it's been my great pleasure. Thank you so much. Then Again is a production of the Northeast Georgia History Center in Gainesville, Georgia. 
Our podcast is edited by media producer Guada Rodriguez. Our digital and on-site programs are made possible by the Ada May Ivester Education Center. Please join us next week for another episode of Then Again.